Hey, hey! This is your host, Ike Allred. Welcome to another episode of Create or Die. That's right, folks. And today, we've got uh, an announcement to make. That's right. We're official. We have launched createordie.net. Go there right now. Check it out and get you some merch. That's right. <laughs> Show your support for this podcast by getting a sweet trucker hat or maybe a little skull tumbler. We've even got ping pong balls. That's right. Custom create or die ping pong balls and much more. We'll be adding to it often. So check that action out. And you ask, you know, why .NET? What kind of cheap, crappy program is this? You're right. The .com was going to be an investment. Uh, it was hundreds of dollars, which uh, to some, you know, may not seem like a lot. But to this program, we're new. We're young. Um, but I am happy to announce that since purchasing the .NET, I did go ahead and uh, bite the bullet and, and purchase the .com. It's going to take a while, a couple weeks for that to transfer over, but uh, we'll be rocking and rolling with with the .com. So, if you if you're a little gun shy of pulling the trigger on a program that that uh, just has a .NET URL, I, I can understand. But we're we're uh, we're remedying that, so no more worries. <laughs> But anyways, uh, you know, the past couple of episodes have been awesome. We've had some great guests. Go check those out. Episode four and five. Uh, hear from some really, really awesome creative talents in their own rights. But for this episode, I decided to, uh, to just go ahead and ramble again. You know, the, going back to our roots from way back. You know, episodes one through three. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and... And there's a, a couple of subjects that uh, I thought might be uh, might be worth, you know, dancing around, if you will. So one of those uh, came to me via social media. You know, I was uh, I was scrolling through the doing the doom scroll, right, and came across a post, a video from Stephen Silver, Stephen Silver, uh, spelled like Stefan. If you don't know who Steven Silver is, he's, uh, he's a character designer uh, for animation. He's been around for decades. He does some amazing stuff. You know, most famously, uh, the Kim Possible series from the Disney Channel way back when, and there's been, been several others. But anyways, he, he's awesome about posting these, you know, knowledgeable nugs if you will and this time around it was the secret to finding work in any animation studio he says if you want to increase your chances of finding work in any animation studio be this you know and he's holding up these little cue cards and he goes to the next card and he has the term be an art chameleon that's right one of those lizards that uh, changes color with its environment. So, 
how do we apply that to art? How does he say? He says, show your ability to change styles. And then also, you know, have your own style. What's unique about you? And, and these are things that we've talked about on this program before. And this was exciting for me to see. Uh, you know, uh, later in this episode, I plan to dive into a little bit of my my backstory. But uh, to make a long story short, you know, my initial love was animation and that was what I was going to do. I was going to be a traditional animator and ended up going the commercial art route and as a multimedia designer was the term back in the early 2000s. And in my career, I've seen how being able to change my style, whether it be for a different website or different logos or different illustration styles, you name it, has been invaluable. And so it was exciting to hear that uh, that applies to the animation industry as well. And as I thought about that, I'm like, you know, I think it applies to, to other industries, other design industries, other visual industries. You know, you look at interior design. Uh, you know, there are those who, who just have their go-to style, but then there are also those, you know, and I'm no expert, but, uh, you know, I watch my fair share of uh, HGTV or, or the DIY network, and you see those designers who can, you know, hear from their client what it is that they want and tailor that design to that person and, and those individuals you know tend to be the most successful at least that's the the direction the spin that we're putting on it in this episode <laughs> so how can we as creatives working in this space learn to adapt our style and be that art chameleon and so I thought about it a little bit. What are, th what are things that have helped me? What are things that I've um, introduced to new designers or, or illustrators or, or, you know, insert creative title here? Um, and one of those is what I've learned is called master studies. Okay. So essentially, you know, you think about traditional art painting you, you look at the the masters you know leonardo michelangelo uh, and so forth and we can apply that to anything whether it be website design or concept art or logo design etc you know find let's just pick website design for example i love pinterest i go there all the time i have several boards I've got thousands of pins throughout. One of my biggest boards is probably my website design inspiration board where, you know, I'll just be scrolling through Pinterest and just tag one of those or pin one of those designs to, to that board. Anyways, there's lots of good inspiring stuff there from all over the web. And so what I've done for myself or for young designers is I'll say, you know, hey, go to this board that I've collected here and just choose one of these designs, you know, and find 
a button or uh, a banner or a layout and do your best to just straight up copy that. You know, it's not anything you're going to put in your portfolio. It's nothing you're going to claim as your own because it's not. You're copying it, right? But that exercise of looking at that button and then looking at your blank screen, whether it be Illustrator or Figma or Sketch or Photoshop or whatever, and, and how in that tool would I recreate that button? And it may be, you know, this was a bigger deal back in the days when buttons were, you know, more askew, morphism, and, and there were several different layer styles or, or effects that needed to be created to give it that chrome look or that gel uh, translucent look, whatever. But you learn a lot by stretching your mind and thinking, how would I recreate this? And that, that leads me to another secret. There's no right way to create any of these things. It's just made up. You know, someone came up with a process and, and others have, you know, adopted that process or created their own. And there are obviously objective arguments to say this one is faster or, or more scalable or whatever but those things are secondary and, and they can be learned later. But my argument is these master studies can really help you learn to adapt new styles. Because one thing that will happen a lot of times in working in commercial art is you have a client or you have a stakeholder or multiple, a committee, if you will, of stakeholders and they have different ideas and and one of the best ways for them to communicate their ideas is to point to something that's already been created and you know i want to be like apple i want to i found this website that i really like and if you're able to find the elements of that style and adapt it to your own and to the content and to the brand and make it work um, that's a that's a valuable thing like my boy Steven Silver said in addition to master studies uh, another thing you can do is limit your tools that you're using when creating something so initially we talked web design let's uh, talk about something else here so take illustration for example you know in this day and age we have amazing digital tools, we have AI, we have the ability to, you know, essentially push a button and generate ideas. Those, those are great and that's something to explore, but let's put a limit on ourselves. Let's get away from the computer for a minute, you know, go and grab yourself a stack of uh, different colored construction paper and some scissors and some stick glue or Elmer's glue, whatever whatever you want to do and try to create a layout you know a design an illustration with those rudimentary tools and there are people out there who specialize in this stuff and create beautiful works of art with these tools and 
are able to find what is inherently unique about construction paper and, and working with this medium. You know, they've used shadow and depth to create things that would be really hard in the computer. Uh, I could go on, but that's just another example is, is limiting your tools. Another way to limit your tools, and this can be done traditionally or on the computer digitally, is if you're going to create a piece of concept art, for example, stick with just one brush size or one brush. You know, use a hard square brush without any opacity, for example, and have it one size and try to create that vision with what is a limited tool. And you'll find that you can't do things the same way you would, say, with a, a number two pencil, where you can get real fine details. It has to be suggestive. It's, uh, it's broad, strong strokes. And you can find ways to use that same brush and get a little bit more detail, but it's tricky. And those are ways to help differentiate your styles or branch out. And I'm sure there are a million other ways, you know, limit the number of colors that you use in your design. Define some rules around the design and form language of your piece. You know, this is going to be round, so I, I need to work with circles and try to avoid any right angles or straight lines in this entire design. You know, is that possible? And you'll find that it is, and you're, and you're going to get some different results, something that you wouldn't normally do. Just now I'm reminded of the fact that trying to describe these visual things on an audio-only platform, like a podcast, is limiting. And I'm having to use words and, and different descriptors to make this all make sense. And it may not. I'm fully aware of that. <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe you'll get something out of this. So yeah, be a creative chameleon. Now, I mentioned earlier in the episode that I might share some of my uh, my story with you. And so if you don't want to hear it, now's a good time to turn it off or at least skip to the end where I'll share some, some final thoughts that may be of some value. But um, some may find it interesting. Who knows? Um, but yeah, my creative life has been a roller coaster. And, and I'll tell you, some days I feel like the ideas are flowing and I'm only limited by time and my imagination. And, and I can, you know, come close to, to doing no wrong, which is contrasted by other days 
where I feel like everything I've ever done is crap and who am I trying to kid? You know, classic imposter syndrome. And then you've got creative burnout, which there are some times where I feel like there's no way I'm ever going to burn out. I can go a million miles an hour. I love this stuff. But life happens. And we do get tired. And we do get beat down by critique after critique that doesn't go our way. Which feeds this imposter syndrome where you might compare yourself to others. You know, my background isn't as fancy as someone else's. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't go to a fancy art school. Hell, I didn't even graduate with a bachelor's degree. That's right. Shocker. And that leads me to something that that I saw recently from Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk. He talks about um, the he talks about burnout. He talks about college and which direction that that we ch- decide to choose. For example, he talks about people overthinking our decisions. You know, and he says you'll never know how the other path would have turned out. So just pick one and do it. You know, our parents' generations, those degrees, they really meant something, and we want to hold on to that. And that's not to say that people that have these fancy degrees, you know, made a mistake. By no means. They, they picked that path. I picked another path. And you just have to own it. And you have to do the best with what you were given. And so that leads me into my story. It was 1997. That's right. I, I graduated high school. I was dead set on becoming a Disney animator and the only school that I knew of that was teaching animation was the local community college. And so I started there and let's be honest, I was a B average student so I wasn't going to make it into one of the fancy universities right out of high school anyways. So. I started there at the community college, took some courses, life drawing, uh, intro to design, math for the visual artist, which is one of my favorites because I was not a math guy <laughs> at all. And, you know, illustration classes, 3D animation classes. I was introduced to uh, 3D Studio Max back then, and my mind was completely blown. Anyway, I took a uh, two-year break to go and serve a mission for my church in California. I returned back home and married my high school sweetheart after just a few months. (laughs) So, you know, if you know anything about Utah, it's kind of the the classic young uh, start to a family type of scenario and the plan was that eventually we would move to San Francisco and I would start attending the Academy of Art College and get a legit a legit degree 
that was the plan. So I was working full time and doing school. And one day on my way to school at you know 5:30 a.m. after probably staying up until 2 a.m. working on an animation project, I fell asleep at the wheel while exiting the freeway. I was jolted awake by the sound of rough road underneath my tires. And I woke just in time to see that I was heading straight for a cement barricade. I was able to thankfully swerve and just sideswipe the cement barricade and drive to the nearest gas station where I collected myself, bought some kind of energy drink, and prayed that I could make it back home to get some much needed sleep. And so at that point, I had a wife and our first child and decided that, you know, school might not be worth dying over. (laughs) So I decided to embrace that blue collar job of mine working at the silver refinery and just be a responsible husband and father and just go to work. We had, you know, the decent insurance, made just enough money to not be completely poor and that was going to be good enough for now. This was the path that I had chosen. But that creative burning was still inside. And so I thought, what, what are some other creative careers that I could do that don't require uh, schooling? Because I, I, like I just said, I don't want to, I don't want to die by trying to work full time and go to school. So I thought the comic industry, comic books, I love comic books. At the time, comics were still kind of in their heyday. You know, comic artists were seen as almost rock stars. I mean, maybe not to the point of the, of the, the 90s. Um, this was just as, you know, Spider-Man uh, came out, the first Spider-Man. And so comic books were, were becoming cool again. So I started working on my portfolio and would go to comic conventions. I think the first one was in Chicago. Um, and then over you know, a two-year period, went to four or five different comic shows where I presented my portfolio and you know, received some good promising feedback. You know, at least one company said, oh man, I wish, I wish we would have seen you at San Diego Comic-Con you know, last month, because we just hired a guy, but he's not as good as you. And, you know, that was before I realized that, oh, that is the comic convention, and that's the one I should have been going to. But anyways, uh, you know, I'd received some other feedback from other studios like Image Comics and, and Dark Horse, who liked my stuff and gave me assignments to, you know, hey, this is great, but why don't you take this, you know, four-page... Uh, script and go create, you know, a few pages and 
here's our contact information and send it to us. And this wasn't paid work at all. This was just, just it, honestly, it felt like a rejection. But in hindsight, like many things, I realized that it was part of the interview process. Um, had I, you know, jumped on those assignments and created uh, some boards and uh, some pages and, and sent them off, you know, then those companies would have seen, oh, this person is dedicated. They got back to us, um, or they, you know, they're fast, or or you know, we can gauge how much time it took them from the time we initially assigned this to to when we received it back. But anyways, long story short, I was deflated and my wife's patience for this <laughs> career pursuit had had run run out. It was at this time when a local company who I had done some sticker illustrations for reached out to me about creating a Flash website. You know, hey, do you do Flash? That was a big thing at the time. Um, this is back in 2003, 2004 at this point. And I said, yeah, you know. And I had very little experience in it. I had used it <laughs> in one class back in college. Um, but anyways, I I took the job to create this little flash website, you know, with lots of animation in it, which I totally enjoyed. And I got 500 bucks. That seemed like a lot of money to do something that I loved. And so I thought, wow, okay, maybe, maybe there's a business for this. <laughs> so I decided to bite the bullet and leap right into that entrepreneur life. I started a studio, you know, created a DBA, got a business license, the whole nine yards, and even rented some studio space in a super rundown, crappy place in Bountiful. And I quickly realized there's a lot more to this running a business thing than just having people randomly call you with work and then life is perfect there i had to wear dozens of hats you know i had to i had to be the business development guy i had to be the money collections person accounts payable i had to be the designer i had to be the illustrator i had to be the developer um i never felt like i had a weekend Every moment that I wasn't working on developing new business or creating new work or, or whatever, I was essentially putting my family at risk. You know, we may not be able to pay rent. We may not be able to buy food. Um, you know, it gets rough when you get down to $7 in your checking account or negative 300 because of so this wasn't working quite as I envisioned it so one day I told my wife uh, I got to figure something out 
and I don't know when I'm going to come home, essentially. And so I went to the office at probably midnight and just worked all night on a portfolio website because I needed to get a real job. I needed to not be the one responsible for everything because obviously I didn't know what I was doing. So miraculously, that paid off. I applied to a local design studio with that uh, one night portfolio website built in Flash, of course, and was woke up, you know, at probably 5 p.m. the next day. My wife came and shook me. There's someone on the phone from that studio. And so I had to jump out of bed and do my best not to have a tired voice and talk to um, the hiring manager at this place and scheduled an interview for the next day. And like I said, miraculously, I landed that job and I felt like I won the lottery. It was awesome. You know, sure, I was making less than what people can make at McDonald's today and, and that company was getting a, a steal um, of a bargain, but to go from making nothing, essentially, being far below the poverty line to making, you know, more than minimum wage, doing something I loved was pretty awesome. And so that hunger, literal hunger and drive helped me rise in the ranks at this new studio. Thanks to my failed experience as an entrepreneur, I did, uh, I did create some relationships with some legit businesses that I was able to bring into this new design studio and add value, linchpin myself at this place. And one of these companies was uh, a small software company that I had actually met in California while on my church mission. And one day I was talking to one of the owners of this company and he mentioned that he had a friend out my way in Utah who was going to reach out about a design position uh, working for this auto auction in Salt Lake City and told me the salary and said, you know, it's a really low salary. It's, uh, it's only, you know, $48,000 a year or whatever. And that's super low, and I know you probably wouldn't want that. And I was thinking at the time, man, that's uh, actually quite a bit more <laughs> than what I'm making. And and so my response to this uh, business owner was, you know, what I'm really waiting for is for you guys to make me an offer to come out and work for you. And they kind of stopped and said would you really uh, consider that and I said yeah you know ever since being in California I've I've always wanted to go back and and I know there's a lot of uh, neat things happening in the Bay Area with tech and everything and so so we set up a, 
a time for me and my wife to go out there um, for a couple of days and check things out and, and talk and and uh, anyways to make a long story short they offered me the position to start the in-house design wing if you will of their three-person software business and so the deal was that as long as I can pay for myself I've got a job and that sounded sounded like a good thing I had learned a lot from my experience failing as an entrepreneur uh, doing my own thing and then seeing for two years how to do it right or at least a way that worked at this studio where I worked for two years and so started there um, you know there there was a little bit of work from existing clients but I had to put my business development hat back on and go out and drum up some business and propose to the owners of this small business you know where to spend some marketing dollars so we did Google ads we did radio ads that I uh, wrote myself and um, had you know acted out by the local uh, talk radio station and created flyers that we hired you know some local kid from you know one of the guys neighborhoods to go around and drop off at uh, different businesses and somehow drummed up a little bit of business to where you know after two or three months I was legitimately paying for myself and that was awesome around the time I left Utah for California to take on this new job I decided to start contributing to iStock photos as a, a vector illustrator uh, it was an excuse for me to um, practice my vector illustration skills while maybe someday making a little money it was slow going you know it took a year before I received my first payout from iStock Photo because you had to sell enough to get to reach that $100 earnings threshold to where they would send you your first check. Initially, I was just designing, illustrating, whatever, you know, a, a businesswoman in brown tones, you know, throw that up there. Uh, a, little cartoon character okay a California landscape of rolling hills and and oak trees uh, nothing you know was really catching on uh, online poker and, and poker on TV was a big thing so I started doing poker related illustrations and, and got some traction there and then found some other niches to uh, to focus on and as I would study the sales and the analytics from from this tool I started to I started to make some some real money on the side so this was great and like I mentioned it took a year to get that first hundred dollars and then only a month to get the second hundred dollars it was only a few months later I was making a thousand dollars a month now 
that was some uh, some real uh, extra spending money so this was awesome and so around this time uh, summer of 2008 I'd been working for this small software company for just over a year and I received a direct message through the iStock platform someone asking if I would create some custom illustrations for their company and I reached out to this person and said yeah would love to um, let me know when we can talk so I can learn more well after talking I realized that this was a lead from a multi-billion dollar biotech company uh, this person wanted me to create illustrations of a, a team of characters for an internal campaign that her team was doing to uh, help build awareness around the change from M Microsoft Office to Google Office, Google Docs, and, and all of those things. And so this team we were creating was uh, the Google Squad is what they called it. And so I knew from past experience and being in this new role in a foreign land that it's probably a good idea to not take this on by myself on the side. And so I decided, I asked this person, hey, is it cool if we do this through my day job? And they were more than happy to do that. And of course, the day job was over the moon about the idea of landing a multi-billion dollar biotech company as a client after working with small little mom-pop customers. So to make a long story short, we were able to hire another designer that took on a lot of the, well if not all, of the web uh, development work, front-end stuff that I had been doing in addition to design and I focus on design and illustration only we were then asked by the same contact to to follow them into a new role at the company where uh, the company was going to start producing their own iPhone apps at the time so this was 2009 you know, late 2008, 2009, when Apple had finally opened up the iPhone to third-party developers. And so she asked if we were interested in learning how to do it with, with her, essentially. There was, there was no one doing this. There was, there was no such thing. And it was awesome to be at the right place at the right time. And so, again, this was a huge boon to the business. We hired more people, designers, developers, and then an amazing thing started to happen. People that we were introduced to at this biotech company left and went to other companies in the Bay Area, other biotechs, other tech companies, and guess what? They needed to bring their secret weapon with them. That was us, our little design slash software development company. From 2009 to 2013, we grew from four people to 30 people. And it was primarily thanks to this one contact 
from my tiny little iStock account and it generated tens of millions of dollars in revenue for this company that I worked with and, and helped to grow. So from 2014 to 2016, the company had its ups and downs. We, um, we would get to a place where that 20 to 30 number of people was hard to maintain because we would train people up and they would go and take their awesome experience and, and get an even better job at Google or Facebook or Salesforce. And so come 2016, I had been in California for nine years and had a handful of kids and decided that it was time for something different, but I didn't want to abandon this company that I had helped to grow and saw so much potential in. But how do, do we you know, help it to grow and, and flourish? And so I thought of Utah, where I was originally from, and how it had been experiencing its own tech boom. So I proposed to the owners of the company that I move back to Utah and start another location of our company there. It was a new pool of talent to draw from. You know, there are several universities here, uh, lots of young college age people that fit perfectly into our hiring demographic, if you will, and so made the plunge, moved out here, and found that it was a little too, too awesome <laughs> here in Utah. It was called Silicon Slopes for a reason, because it was a lot like that place I had just come from, Silicon Valley, where awesome companies like Adobe and Microsoft and other Utah-only companies flourished and were offering amazing benefits and salary that our little company couldn't compete with. So after two years of being here in Utah, trying to make a go of starting HQ number two, I decided to step away and leave the reins of the design part of the company in the hands of my creative number two over there. And so I felt good knowing that this company was, was in a good place and I was free to start anew after being at the same company for 11 years. And that's when I started at my first in-house company, MX, the medium-sized fintech company that I've alluded to in previous episodes. I felt like joining MX was another huge step in my career, helping to um, 
legitimize myself, if you will, back to these feelings of imposter syndrome and inadequacy. Tell you what, people at MX seem so sharp and so with it, and they had this amazing drive for the mission that was absolutely intoxicating. And it was like drinking from a fire hose, trying to learn everything I could about the financial industry, fintechs, how they fit into to this world of banks and credit unions. And it's been amazing. I've been here for nearly five years, seen a lot of growth, a lot of change, been through a few CEOs, seen executives come and go and I continue to to learn and grow and that is where we're at and here I am starting this podcast pursuing other creative outlets trying to find that next challenge and rather than jumping ship from what has been the most amazing job I've ever had. I'm looking for these creative challenges in other ways, like this podcast, like my ebook that will soon be released where I talk more about my art stock side hustle. So stay tuned. I'm sure I'll uh, make mention of that when it's ready and available on this podcast in a future episode. Anyways, I hope that uh, this exercise and me sharing my creative journey, my story, as far as my professional life is concerned, um, doesn't sound self-serving but rather helps you to see that there are paths that aren't traditional that one can take and still make a living doing what you love creating in my case so thanks again for taking the time to listen to another episode of this little podcast and if you enjoy it and want to show your support you you know what to do tell your friends tell your co-workers and tell your family to listen and subscribe and like I mentioned at the start of the program there's a new way you can show your support visit createordie.net and get you some merch That's right. (laughs) Keep on creating, my friends. Until next time, this is your live-in male nanny in charge of your days and your nights and your wrongs and your rights. Like I'm part of your family, I can charge. I mean, Allred. Signing off. Create or die.